Let's get started tonight with a lesson that I'm titling A Prophet from Among Us. This, this title doesn't really look like an Advent-style message, but I am trying to think in terms of Advent for the purposes of the next few Tuesday nights to get us, uh, and this is my own little spin on this, really, um, why not? Um, but to really get us to thinking about Jesus' arrival, not just in, not, not in terms so much of a second coming, so to speak, but in terms of what were they looking for in Jesus? Last week, we talked about wait for it. And we, we really try to get inside the mind of the Bible reader, those living out the stories of the Bible for thousands of years before Christ who were constantly in wait mode. Wait, wait, it's not here yet, it's not here yet, it's not here yet. And anybody gets tired of waiting. I mean, you know, it's not easy when you're a little kid. You, Christmas is coming and, oh, how many days till Christmas? And then, you know, a little kid's losing his mind because it just feels like it's never going to get here. And then to, to the point we just made, the older you get, the faster it gets here. And the, it can't slow down enough for you. Like, it's here too quickly. Um, but no matter how old you are, if you're waiting on something to arrive, you, you can... It gets, it's tough, if, depending on what it is you're waiting for. Um, so we're trying to get in the mind of those who were in the Bible in that mode of wait. Um, and so I prayed about this week, wh wh where do we want to go in regards to trying to get in that slot of what they're thinking? So last week was kind of a Genesis 3. There's a seed comes, going to bruise the serpent's head. He's going to bruise the serpent's heel. And then wait, 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 and then and then that arrival. Um, that's sort of the, that's the opening prophetic. Wait, he's coming. The seed's coming. Eve thought she had him. I think she thought she had him right away. She was wrong, which should lead us to to realize that we're not we don't always have this figured out. So when we think we know what it's going to look like, it doesn't always look the way we think that it will look. So Israel thought they knew what they were looking for in a Messiah. Maybe it would be someone like Judah Maccabees had been, someone like the hammer, someone who would lift the sword against Caesar, someone who would deliver them from the Roman oppressor. And as you know, we've studied the Gospels enough to know that's not Jesus. But that doesn't mean he's not Messiah. It just means he's not the Messiah they were looking for. What else might they have been looking for? And, and to find out, I, I wish we'd get in a time machine and go back and speak Aramaic and hang out for a week and really get inside their heads. We can't do that. we got the literature. We've got what's been passed down. But we do have the text of the Old Testament, and we know they took it serious. And if they took it serious, then we should. And one of the advent, one of the waitings, one of the arrivals they were looking for was a prophet. They were looking for a prophet from among them because that was part of the prophecy that had been given to them. So I want to read into that prophecy by going back a little further than I need to, a little deeper into Torah from Exodus 20. And Exodus, of course, is famously the text in which God gives the law to Moses. He brings his children out of Egypt, and then he gives the law to Moses, and Israel struggles with this God that's on the mountain. And I want to take you to that mountain moment. I have been guilty of only going to the Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Those are interchangeable terms, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. I've, I've been guilty in preaching of only really going to Mount Sinai to talk about the law and, and only to talk about the law in terms of putting Israel under the law and how you've been released from law. Okay, that's a, that's a worthwhile journey, but that's not the only thing we can say there. And so let's go look at it from a prophetic standpoint. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. And this is in the middle of the... God's just 
sound coming off the mountain, just the thundering of God. All the people witnessed those thunderings. The lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. This, by the way, looks a lot like Hebrews 12. You have not come to the mountain Sinai that is smoking and thundering. He's just describing the Exodus 20 experience. When the people saw this, they trembled. They stood afar off. Note the distancing. They're doing this. God's not distancing. They are distancing. And then they say to Moses, well, you speak with us and we'll hear, but, but don't let God speak with us lest we die. That's, that's their attitude. So their thought process is God is scary. We don't know what's going on. Thunder, lightning, blackness. The whole mountain is trembling. Listen, Moses, if you talk to us, we can deal with that. We can't deal with this. So they take, just imagine a big step backward. I know it's probably not that case. There's millions of people who can take a collective step back, but there's a sense of mm, shying away from what's going on at the mountain. And so, 20, Moses then responds, don't fear. God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood far off. They stay far off. They don't take a step back to God. They stay away from God. They've already taken the backward step, so they, they just stay there. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. There's this great contrast that then sets itself into the narrative of the Old Testament. That the people move away from God and Moses steps into the thick darkness. Moses becomes Israel's hero. The guy that runs into the chaos. He, he steps into darkness because inside the darkness is where God is. By the way, God, this sounds, this sounds counterintuitive to how we think of God. But God dwells in the thick darkness. God is wherever your darkness is. And Solomon found that when he went into the most holy place and he put the He's building the temple. And he had them bring the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place. And he pulled the curtain and the presence of God came down. And the Bible says that he knew God spoke to him from the thick darkness. Have you ever thought about that? That the Ark of the Covenant's in a room with no windows, no doors, and no candles. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's, that's heaven on earth. Why, why, why does God dwell in the darkness? And then the New Testament comes and says God is light. Here comes, here comes the light of God, which becomes the life of men. And God injects Himself into the human experience as a human because God has to go into our darkest space. So God dwells in that space. Moses runs straight into that space. Israel shrinks away from that space. So the, the people sort of naturally pull away from God. And I just get, I want to give you a couple thoughts. I didn't put these on any kind of screen. Just, I just want you to think about these. You cannot intimately know someone that you don't spend any time with. So the Israel that we see deep into the Bible, we like to think that Israel is a direct result of Abraham. They are in their genealogy, but they're a direct result of this moment in their attitude. And your genealogy and your attitude are two different things. It's like you are not your parents, okay? You're a product of your parent or your environment or how you were raised or who raised you, but you are not them. And you don't have to be bound 
by being them. So Israel's not Abraham. They have their lineage in Abraham, but they have their own attitude. They have their own response mechanism. So it's a little disingenuous to trace Israel and who they are as a people in the Old Testament back to Abraham. You went too far. Like, really, if you want to know how they feel about God, you can stop right here at Sinai. Because it's at Sinai that they all take one big collective step away from God. And they say, God's too much for us. We're not able to deal with Him face to face. Moses, you go do it for us. You you talk to God. And when you take a step away from proximity, you take 10 steps away from intimacy. I mean, and I'm not just talking about geographically. You know, we're not always in the same room with our spouse. That doesn't have anything to do with us taking a step away from them. But when we do begin to build distance between people, it's impossible to be intimate with people that we, we build a moat and we don't let them in. We don't let them into our mind. We don't let them into our heart. We don't let them into our whatever. And there, it's inevitable that given enough time and enough distance, we start to lose intimacy. And there, you know, there's people in your life that you think they'll be part of your life forever because you're with them every day. First time you experience this really is in school. You're a kid, like all the way into high school. And you kind of think, I'm going to be friends with this guy in my fourth hour math class, my sophomore year. We're buddies. We're going to be friends the rest of our lives. And the odds are really slim that you will be friends for at least the next three years. Maybe you make it through your senior year, but then things go off a cliff really fast because life takes you in totally different directions. And the longer you're separated, the less intimacy is there. So take that big collective step back with Israel from God. And then you've got a framework for how the rest of the Bible plays out. So I'm, I'm, I'm only saying that to try and give you an understanding of why you get some of the things you get about what they say about God as the scriptures go on. Because how much do you know about someone you don't ever hang out with? Um, this is why, and this is just a, a very subtle warning to Christians. We can't speak of Him if we don't spend time with Him. Singing four songs on a Sunday morning about how good he is, is not getting to know him intimately. You know, listening to a 30 minute sermon with four verses in it is not going to cut it for knowing the still small voice. That's got to be cultivated. I don't get intimate with Natasha spending, you know, a few quality moments a week. And so That's not a condemning statement. It's just a blanket statement of intimacy. And so the the more time that we spend, we're not more saved if we spend more time with him. We're not more righteous. We're not more justified. We're not more sanctified. We might be more intimate. Oh, absolutely. And in that intimacy, we learn his voice. We learn when he says, don't turn left. We don't have to argue with it. We learn when he says, don't go this way, go that way. We become intimate with what he sounds like. But the collective backstepping is birthed in fear. So when we're afraid of God, we're intimidated by God, we're at an odds or at a distance from God, we, even if we don't realize that we take a step backward. 
This backward motion has been the natural response of God of men to God forever. It starts in, in Eden when God shows up in the garden and Adam steps back into the bushes. Adam, where are you? Well, I'm hiding because I was naked and I was afraid. Who told you that? that you know the story. And then every time God shows up in the Bible, people freak out. They fall on their face and they think they're going to die. And the angels always go, be not afraid. Stand up. Jesus is always saying to his disciples, calm down. Be not afraid. Relax. Because we've taken that step backwards. And this is, this is sort of the genesis of that. Was our response to that. So pull away from someone. Um, you're going to misinterpret them. And Moses then steps in where Israel steps back. Now, this is Exodus. This is, this is still up near the front of the Torah. It's five books long. Let's, let's fast forward to the back of the Torah. Because when you get to Deuteronomy, here's the same Moses retelling the whole story to Israel. Going, hey, remember when this happened? And this, If you've never read Deuteronomy... I highly encourage you to read it because what's fascinating to me about Deuteronomy is that it's essentially Moses talking for most of the book. It's sort of Moses going, okay, uh, let me recount to you. He's, he's, I don't even know that he's not reading it. Let me recount to you what we did. And then the cool part about it is that all through the story, the responses change in Deuteronomy from the way they were laid down in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Because Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers take place in a real tight window of history. Deuteronomy just retells that story, basically. I mean, this is like a 40-year window right here. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Or Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Deuteronomy lets them act like it's a week long. We don't know how long Moses takes, but he's just talking. And it's, it's, it's cool to me to watch how things change in the way they're retold. In This is the product of looking back on something, getting more perspective. Deuteronomy almost serves as a commentary to the earlier part of the Torah. Like, like Moses saying, remember this? Here's what was really happening. Okay, here's one of those moments. In Deuteronomy 18.15... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. There's our title. We'll get into that in a minute. It's going to be from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, that's Sinai, in the day of the assembly, saying, and here comes the text we just read, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. The wording's not exactly the same, as would be expected if you're a whole generation later telling the same story, right? And so he misses a word or two here. That's fine. That's a man retelling what he told the first time. But notice, this is the moment. And then Moses throws something else in. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good, which we didn't know that in Exodus. But we get that in Deuteronomy. It's, De- it's Moses going, I didn't tell you guys this the first time. But actually what happened is the Lord, after you guys took a step back and got afraid, is the Lord told me that's good. I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. 
and I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I opened tonight by telling you that last week I tried to do a Advent thought process revolving around, wait, 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 he's coming. And then we get him and how joyous they were to receive him. This week, I, I, I take you on a, a different type of journey into the mentality of Israel looking for a second Moses. Because according to Deuteronomy 18, God says it's good that they backed up for me. I'm going to give them someone they can understand. I'm going to raise up a prophet from among them. I'm going to raise someone up from among their brethren. Someone who is going to... I'm going to put my words in his mouth. He's going to speak to him all that I can. They don't know this is Jesus, but I believe this is Jesus. And in fact, early Christianity believed this was Jesus. When Peter is walking into Solomon's temple in Acts chapter 3, and him and John see that lame man by the temple. He's been there 40 years. And... The guy wants alms. Remember this story? And Peter goes, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ. And as rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up and walks and everybody loses their mind, which of course, and Peter turns to the crowd and preaches his second sermon. His first sermon's on the day of Pentecost. His first sermon's fine. His second sermon's brilliant. It's one of the finest Pieces of literature in the New Testament. It's, it's the brilliant moment of um, we await the times of refreshing from the Lord our God and then anticipate apokatastasis. He, he uses that Greek word. We anticipate the total restoration of all things in Jesus. Brilliant. And then right out of the apokatastasis verse, he quotes this. This is one of the first Deuteronomy texts to be picked up by a New Testament preacher. He quotes, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet from among you. And Peter's the first guy to put Jesus into, that, into those shoes. And he does it as early as Acts 3. Brilliant. And so under the influence, under the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter knowing his Torah, at least enough to know we're waiting for a prophet, we're waiting for a prophet, we're waiting for a prophet. Grabs Jesus, who looks nothing like Elijah, who looks nothing like Isaiah. Some people thought he was a little Jeremiah-ish. Because remember, at one point, Jesus goes, who do men say that I am? And you go, well, some people think you're Jeremiah, which is an interesting response. So why prophet? What was it about Jesus that they thought was a prophet? Well, this prophecy says that he's, God's going to put his words in his mouth. He's going to speak to them, and I'm going to command them. Jesus said this of himself. Give me John 8. The crowd said to Jesus in John 8, 25, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. I speak to the world those things. This is a great phrase. I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. This has always been a baseline understanding for me about Jesus is to say, whatever you hear Jesus say, if you trust Jesus, and I do implicitly, if you trust Jesus, then you trust that what he's saying he heard from his father, like a conduit. 
The Father said this to me, and Jesus says it to you. This is your way of knowing what God sounds like. What's God sound like? Jesus. Why do we need that? We'll read through it first. He sent me as true. I speak the words that I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. 28. Then Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you're going to know that I'm he. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me. I speak these things. When you lift up the Son, that's when, you, when I die. When you crucify me, you're going to know that I'm he. This whole prophecy that a prophet's going to come, and he's going to speak what God said, you're not going to get this until I'm dead. But when I'm dead, you're going to get it. My father taught it. I speak it. 29. He who sent me is with me. The father's not left me alone. For I always do the things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And maybe they believed in him because they did trust that they had been, were to be looking for a prophet from among their midst. Jesus claims to be that prophet. He says, if I say it, it's because I heard him say it. If I do it, it's because I saw him do it. Why is this necessary? Well, this is my thoughts. Torah opens with the promise of a seed of the woman. Remember that? We we read that last week, Genesis 3. And that seed's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Torah closes with the promise of a prophet, Deuteronomy. And that prophet will come from among their brethren, meaning that that prophet is going to be a man just like you. He's going to come up out of your ranks. He's going to come up out of your tribe. You don't look for him to descend from the mountain. You look for him to ascend up from out of your midst. This sets Israel on a prophetic course looking for someone that looks like them. Now, looking, this, this opens them to a son. Isaiah will say, a, a child is given to us. A son is given to us. A child is given to us. This opens them to the virgin birth, to the nativity. The whole story of Jesus hinges on that. But that man is going to speak for God to the people. So a prophet listens to God and then speaks to the people on behalf of God. In other words, prophets listen and speak. Sounds conversational. I ask this question. What does this indicate about how the serpent's head is crushed? Because it's easy to say, well, Satan's head is crushed when Jesus dies on the cross. And I... I get it. I, I agree. That's a pretty good crushing. It doesn't look like a crushing. It looks like the other way around. Jesus loses, right? He dies. The real crushing is when the stone rolls away. Jesus comes out of the grave and crushes the head of the serpent. But I don't think Jesus... I, I think that Jesus that comes out of the wilderness has just overcome the devil. He doesn't come out of the wilderness and still need to overcome the devil. He comes out of the wilderness and he has just given him a black eye, man. And everywhere he turns in his early ministry, he's casting out devils and the demons know who he is. And they're screaming out. Mark and Luke love to do this early in the Gospels of Mark and Luke where the demons are like projecting about Christ and Son of God and Son of David and Son of Man. They got all these titles for Jesus like they know the prophecies because they do. And Jesus is always telling them to be quiet. And I got, a lot, I got theories on that. I'll leave that alone. But that's for another time, another sermon. But 
they're beaten. They're beaten when they're on their way out. They're, beat, they're, they're projecting what they know about him, this prophet. As they're, so I, I don't think Jesus doesn't navigate the world going, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get the devil at the cross. He's, he walks out of the wilderness having already overcome the temptations, having already blackened the, the eye of the enemy. I think, it's, I think it needs to be considered that the anointing that rests on Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, for he hath anointed me. What's the first thing he's anointed to do? For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach. Out of the mouth. It's not heal. It's not raise the dead. It's not walk on water. It's not feed the hungry. It's preach. My first, this is the prophet standing up, man. I am here for the sword to come out of my mouth. And every time it does, I bruise the devil's head. This isn't just waiting on the cross. This is every time he opens his mouth, he's here. John would write in 1 John, For this purpose was the Son of God made manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hear that. For this purpose was the Son of God made manifest, put on display. For this purpose was the Son of God put on display that He might destroy the works of the How did He destroy them? He just kept opening His mouth. Every time He opened His mouth, <laughs> he's, he's knocking out devils. Every, even in the wilderness, how does He overcome the devil? As it is written. You're not going to beat me. You're, if, you think, if, if you're coming at me with, with what you brought against Eve, which is talking to her, you've got no chance. And everything else you've got, I'm going to defeat at the cross. Because you're going to throw the best you have, which is death, at me. And I'm going to absorb it. And I'm going to go down into the darkness. Because God always goes down into the darkness. Remember, that's where God lives. And he goes down into the darkness. And then he's going to come out the other side. That's, that's the beauty of resurrection. That's the glory of that. And so out of his mouth, he's winning. He's defeating the powers of darkness. And that reminds me. Of what has to be the first moment Jesus gets that. Because I am fascinated by, by little Jesus. By teenage Jesus. And by 25-year-old Jesus. Um, part of the reason I'm fascinated by teenage Jesus and 25-year-old Jesus is that 12-year-old Jesus knew who he was. Which means 18-year-old Jesus hasn't forgotten. And 25-year-old Jesus hasn't forgotten. And yet he sits on it until the time appointed. And man, that's a good lesson. So just because you got something doesn't mean you got to use it until it's time. There's always a time. Let me tell you, there's always a time and it's not always your time. You remember, remember our guy in Acts 3? Um, Peter and John, I'm, this is probably anachronistic, but the guy's shaking a cup. <laughs> Alms for the poor. Silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give unto you. Take up your bed and walk. He'd been there 40 years. 40 years, right by the temple. How many times Jesus walked through the gate called Beautiful and walk into the temple? Well, at least three. I mean, there's at least three Passover stories in the adult ministry of Jesus where he shows up in the temple court. We got at least one, maybe two separate incidents where he clears the temple of the money changers. He's walked past that guy at least six times, three on the way in and three on the way out. He never healed him. 
Why not? Because Jesus didn't live his life doing what he could. He lived his life doing what the Father directed him to do. Life is not about opportunity. Don't miss your chance. That's the stuff the world tells you. Jesus is listening to his Father. I've got a feeling he passed that guy six times. And all six times he looked at him. And the Father said, that one's for Peter. And so Jesus just keeps walking. And probably the guy shakes that cup at Jesus more than one. And I got a feeling Jesus looks over at Judas and goes, give him some coins. Let's give him what we got. And maybe he wonders, why don't he heal me? I don't know why I didn't heal him. I, I think maybe it's because Peter and John are supposed to be a part of that next three. I don't know. I don't tell God how to do it, but I think it's a pretty fascinating story. So timing matters. Jesus is teenage Jesus and knows he's called and still sets on it. He's 25-year-old Jesus. He knows he's called, still sets on it. Somewhere between age 12 and age 30, Jesus' dad dies. Joseph disappears from the biblical narrative. He's there, and then he's not by the time Jesus is an adult, which means Jesus went to his earthly father's funeral. And he already knew his father's business. And he doesn't reach out and touch Joseph's casket like he will the widow's son at name. And he doesn't say, roll away the stone, Dad, come forth. A little bit like he will in John 11 with Lazarus. And he doesn't clear the room of mourners, of his aunts and his uncles and his brothers and his sisters and his cousins and his mom and say, get out, Dad's not dead, he's just asleep. Like he does with the little 12-year-old girl. So, knowing your father's business is part of waiting on when it's time to take care of business. It's part Advent. But what, what, what does that look like? So let's read that story. Okay, this is a good way to end. Don't get too excited because I'm not as done as I sound, but it's, it's a good little story. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. I know you know the story, but we're going to read it anyway. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. He probably starts walking past that paralyzed guy by the age of 12, or maybe as early as he can walk. Just worth thinking about. When they finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. I kind of think it's funny that the New King James capitalizes the B in boy. I don't know why I think that's funny, but it's kind of boy Jesus, like boy George. <laughs> you were thinking it? I had to go ahead and say it anyway. Boy Jesus. Boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey, and they looked for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. They've lost him. So when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. 46. Now, so it was after three days. Three is an important word. You see it all throughout the Bible. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said, son, what, why have you done this? Your father and I sought you anxiously. And he said, that, why did you seek me? Did you know that I must be about my father's business? So already at 12, Jesus has an awareness of who his father is. His heavenly father. And he has a knowledge of what his business is. This is what I'm here to do. Now, he doesn't, again, he doesn't mention heal the sick or raise the dead, or walk on the water, or turn the water to wine, or go to the cross, or resurrect. This sounds like 30-year-old Jesus. 
on Saturday morning in the synagogue going, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for He hath anointed me to open my mouth. Same thing 18 years later that he's going to say. I'm here to do dad's work. Dad's work is to open my mouth. But they didn't understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now, Brian, go back one screen. Look, watch Jesus do these specific things. He's, he's in the temple. He said in the middle of the teachers, listening, asking questions. They found him in the middle, listening and asking questions. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. His father's business has a very specific set of instructions, which would make sense if you're on business, you got to know what you're doing. You don't wing it. You're here on business. We're not on vacation. We're not on holiday. We're on business. And if we're going to take care of business, we got to do these things in order. So that leads me to this thought. What is the father's business? Well, let's just look at his four. Jesus listens. And I want you to at least mentally put these down to memory. Because part of the reason why we're not great conversationalists is because we go out of the order of the father's business. And we're a world trying to understand, quote, quote, unquote, understand what's going on. But we don't start with listening. Jesus is great at everywhere he walks in, listen first, talk last. I want you to notice that the answer, sneak peek, doesn't come till number four. Because Jesus doesn't think you walk into the room with answers. And he's the son of God. Like, if anybody's got answers, it's Jesus. But the Father's business values hearing what's going on in you. It, it values hearing what it is you have to say. And so Jesus' approach is first to listen. It's why James says, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. It's that old analogy that you got two ears and one mouth, so you ought to listen twice as much as you talk. Well, that's probably... Pretty good advice. At least start with listening and really listen. Because if you really listen, you get to number two, which is you might hear something you got to ask a question about. This is the Lord of glory asking questions. If Jesus, and don't tell me, well, he's 12. He knows his father's business. If Jesus, who knows his father's business, thinks the second most valuable thing to do in a situation is to ask questions, then you get permission to ask them as well. I, I wish I had started asking questions earlier. I still ask them pretty early. I mean, some wait a lot longer to ask them. Um, it's the valuable part of study to this day with me is asking Questions, but trying to ask better questions, not just questions, for questions' sake. But Jesus, part of the Father's business is to listen what's going on. Now, I want you to think of this as a crossbeam. Think of this as vertical and horizontal. So Jesus is doing all this with His Father first. Listen to what the Father would say. Ask the Father questions. This is His approach in Gethsemane. Guys, we've got to go to Gethsemane. Why? Because the Father's pulling me there. He gets, that's listen. He gets there, he asks questions. 
Father, is there any other way we can do this? Here's a good question. Is there any other way we can do this? Let's do that. Number three, understand, which comes with, if there is no other way to do this, I get it. Let's go. I'll go to the cross. Because understanding people can't happen until you've listened to them, until you've wrestled out questions, and we still haven't gotten to the answer. <laughs> because understanding precedes the answer. And of course, number four is that Jesus answers, but he doesn't do that first. We're in an environment where everyone has a voice, and that's great. Or is it? You know, I don't know sometimes if it's so great. The reason I don't know if it's so great is because we don't really know how to have a conversation. It would be great if we knew how to have a conversation, which was like we listened, and then we asked legit questions so that we could legit learn. Then we could understand something we didn't know when the conversation started, and then we might be able to give an answer as to what we've learned. But we don't do that. We go right in. And we give this fake, how many of you have read this or heard people say this? You know, I don't understand why beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, boop. And then they give an answer. So they don't actually listen to anyone. They don't actually ask a question. They phrase a question around their lack of understanding. And then rather than being quiet after admitting that I don't understand, we just go right into what it is we don't understand as if we understand. And... We're not getting anywhere, and we're getting so polarized. And so there's a power that we have and the ability to communicate that Jesus learned how to use early and called it dad's business. And he never stops doing this. So you got your vertical beam, you got your horizontal beam. So when Jesus walked into a room, he listened. He listened for dad. What do I do? Then he listened to people. And they could say anything to him. And sometimes they said Terrible things to it. Sometimes it's vicious things to it. And then he questioned them. Watch all the times Jesus asks questions in the Gospels. It's crazy. There's question marks after nearly everything Jesus says. Questions, questions, questions. Jesus comes to an understanding, understands what they need, what's going on with them, and then Jesus provides the answer. But he doesn't walk into the room and give it first. So I take all of that to mean that Jesus redefine the role of prophet by sticking close to these four rules. And that serves as a template for how we talk to God, and it serves as a template for how we address man. So Jesus comes from among us as the prophet Israel had looked for, had waited for, had longed for. And it had to be a little shocking that he's not exactly like Moses. A fact that we don't really get any, nobody really talks about while he's here. John writes it years later in John 1 when he says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. You don't hear Jesus saying much about it. In fact, Jesus mentions Moses a couple of times, and it's all in legalistic terms. When he says the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and then one time he says, don't think I've come to judge you. You already have Moses to judge you. And so Jesus contrasts himself from Moses. But he was like Moses in that he was a man lifted up among, from, from among his people who out of his mouth came this word of power. So I would conclude it by saying this. I, I, I believe in New Testament prophecy. Absolutely. I'm going to tell God he doesn't use prophets. But they can't look. They're not superior to Jesus. And they don't have a way of doing it that's better than Jesus. And so true prophecy starts by listening. 
to what God is saying in the moment and listening to what people bring to the table by asking questions of God in the environment and asking questions of people and then hearing what they have to say to those questions and then truly coming to a place where we understand. We both understand what people are in need of. We understand what scares people. We understand what people are looking for. And only then do we get to the point of answers. We shouldn't get to the answer until we've done those steps. That's the Father's business. That's the prophet from among us. Let's pray. How do you pray on this message? I mean, Jesus has already come. He's already this. We don't have to pray for him to be this. He is the prophet from our midst. Okay, so we pray that we, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, reflect the Jesus style. That's how we pray. We're following him. That's our master. We're his disciples. We say we want... We, we know that they, we have life and death and power of our tongue, so this sword that's coming out of our mouth, and teach us, Father, what the Father's business looks like. And if, it's a, if this is a template at all, then it's not a template of legalism. It's a, it's a map that Jesus lays out in front of you. He goes, this is how we hear from our Father. Father, thank you tonight for this word that has so moved me this today and, and, and so positioned me you began to work this in me actually a couple weeks ago through podcasts, just watching little 12-year-old Jesus do this. But it wasn't until you connected this dot with the prophet from among us and that which comes out of his mouth that it really soaks into my soul the, the power that Jesus had just when he opened his mouth and that I'm a disciple of Jesus and if I follow his template, that it isn't about speaking the way Jesus would have said it, but it's about doing my father's business in the way that Jesus did his father's business. Help us with that, Father, as we walk this out every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.